Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Angela Rayner, returning to the show on stunning form, as you would absolutely imagine. Uh, Angela's always great fun as a guest because as well as the passion and the drive and the urgency that she has um, as a politician, forged, of course, by her upbringing and, and the way that she saw life, she's also absolutely hilarious and outrageous and... <laughs> Oh man, I'm just remembering some of the things she says in this, but I, I don't want to, no spoilers. But there is a um, there is a drink that is mentioned. I would say midway through this that I'd never heard of. Um, so get in touch if you've ever had one. Political Party Podcast at gmail dot com, um, or maybe tweet your pictures of this particular thing. I don't want to ruin the impact. I'd never heard of it, but um, the more I think about it, the more I think I'm going to try it. But this is uh, fantastic. Lots of talk about how Labour positions itself ahead of the next general election, about the difficult choices it's making and whether it's making the right ones, but also mixed in with stories of uh, clubbing in Spain the other week till five in the morning and um, the unique challenges faced by having a smartwatch that tracks your exercise. I'm going to give no more away. Oh, just to let you know, the last one of these, I should remember to promote future shows, uh, is on the 21st of August. Um, with Kate Forbes. So it's the 21st of August at the Gilda Balloon uh, with Kate Forbes, who almost became the First Minister of Scotland. So that uh, will be absolutely fantastic. But I'm now going to take a break because I want you to enjoy an hour in the company of one of our most charismatic politicians, Angela Rayner. Thank you very much. Oh, what a wonderful welcome. Hello. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for coming to what is going to be a very special hour for all of us. I am delighted uh, that Angela Rayner is my guest this afternoon. Angela's been on the podcast before, and as you may be aware, that episode went viral about 16 times uh, based on uh, various stories that, that Angela told me in that. She is one of the most charismatic politicians this country has ever produced. She's the deputy leader of the Labour Party, and her and Keir Starmer's leadership are delivering it to the brink of government. We're about to hear from one of the most exciting politicians in the UK, someone who is resolutely herself and is inspiring people across the country, but particularly people from working class backgrounds, not just to go into politics, but to make something of their lives as well. Please raise the roof for Angela Rayner. <laughs> Thank you. I love that we've got smoke and lights because I can only see the front row now. So <laughs> it's less intimidating. Showbiz, isn't it? I know. We've got a stage. <laughs> I'm well, a bit worried because every time I'm on stage with you, it does end up in a bit of carnage and spicy, so I'm going to try and behave myself a little bit. <laughs> well, obviously, today is off the record, so it's totally fine. Um, <laughs> so you don't need to worry about anything. You can speak freely. Um, so you're in Scotland. Yes. Are you here for a few days? Are you on like a sort of political tour? I have been here for a few days and I went to the northeast. I got to do uh, a media round on top of a live nuclear reactor. Rishi Sunak hasn't done that yet, I don't think. <laughs> so that was quite interesting. And yeah, I've been doing a bit of a tour, seeing our Labour friends across the whole of Scotland. So that's been nice. And I saw in the Daily Mirror that you're doing it in a, like a battle bus yeah. called Rainer on the Road. Rainer on the Road. In like, that, it looks like a like one of those mobile camper van things. <laughs> that's very, <laughs> that's a very triggering phrase me. in Scotland at the moment. Mine was not paid for by the members. <laughs> Just saying. Yours has been done with the Daily Mail. Daily Mirror. Daily Mirror, of course. God, what? <laughs> I mean, that would be interesting. <laughs> be more like legs on the road if it was the Daily Mail. I suspect. <laughs> So the, it, it, this camper van, do you actually drive it? Do you sit in the passenger seat? Do you actually sleep in it? 
I mean, they wouldn't let me drive it. And no, I haven't slept in it. And um, yeah, we've just gone around, you know, had a bit of ice cream like politicians do and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which again, as politicians, it's always a bit scary when you're eating food. Like, I did the last leg and at the end, they wanted me to do a pie eating competition and I just had George Galloway and Big Brother in my mind. <laughs> and I was like, no way, that's not going to happen. So, you know, you just have to be really careful about eating in public. You do, yes. Um, and so what ice cream did you have? Oh, it's just a Mr. Whippy. I loved it. And they call it monkey's blood in the northeast that they put on it. So, yeah, a bit of monkey's blood. <laughs> and, and just to be clear... Not real str- monkeys. Exactly, no. yeah. No, no. Because well, I didn't think it was. If it was, it tasted really nice. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, what sort of reception have you been getting in Scotland then? Do you, do you get the sense that people are perhaps warming to Labour more now? Yeah, I mean, it is, it, the, the, the um, sort of landscape has changed towards Labour over the last couple of years. You know, we've been working really hard to get that, um, earn that respect back because I think we lost it in Scotland. We're, people were very emotionally charged because Scotland has always been traditionally quite a Labour area and I think they felt quite betrayed by Labour for a long time. So there was this emotional connection and anger towards, towards us and we've been moving, I think, going in the right direction to try and... Uh, I think when me and Keir took over, it was about being given the, uh, you know, agreement for us to be even in the room, to be honest. Never mind then coming up with what we think should happen and how we can help change the UK. So I think we're in a different place now, but we're certainly not complacent and thinking, oh, well, we're going to romp home or anything. That's certainly not how we're looking at it. It's about being able to make those incremental steps to prove to people that we have an opportunity to govern and we'll govern in the interests of them and we can actually do the things we're saying. That's quite challenging at times because we've had to say, no, we can't do certain things. And, and that's frustrated people in the party and outside of it. Um, but it's about making sure that people can really see that what we're saying we're going to do, we're actually going to do it and we, we've got the ability to do it. One of the things that's been quite controversial that you said you, you won't do for now is raising the two-child limit. Yeah. You're someone who grew up on benefits, you know, the importance of, of, uh, of them to, to families who have no other income. Do you feel comfortable with Labour having a policy like that? I mean, that, poli- that policy is abhorrent, and there's quite a number of them that the Tories have brought in over the last 13 years, and we're not going to be able to do everything immediately. So we made a choice of um, putting free breakfast clubs in for every child, because I was a child on free school meals, and I said, I you know, apologised to my teachers later on, is because the first bit of getting into school in the morning was how do I get to lunchtime to get to get my dinner so we did uh, research that says that giving free breakfast was actually a more impactful way of, of helping and we were going to have a child poverty strategy which would look at how we can move towards that but unless we grow the economy and reverse what the Tories have done we're not going to be able to do everything overnight and that is really really difficult for for us but we've got to get into government to start making that change because I can't imagine another four years of where we are now and where that's going to take us into the future but we're not going to be able to reverse everything overnight and and, and that is difficult but that's that's um leadership and being in power in power you have to make difficult choices and we have to be honest with the public about that uh, obviously you, your main opponents at a general election are the Tories but up here it is the SNP what have you made of what's happened to to them and, and to the, the scandal that Nicola Sturgeon's found herself engulfed in the last few months I mean, one of the problems, and it's the SNP, and and Labour's had these problems as well, and the Conservatives, is that people just lose faith in politicians. And I think, you know, the frustration for me, and I've been doing a lot of the work on the Ethics and Integrity Commission, and now we can bring uh, rules in, and people have said to me while I'm doing it, and they've said it to the last Labour government on things like freedom of information, that be careful what you wish for, Ange. (laughs) And it's like, you know what, it's what you do about it when you find out. I'm not going to say and sit here and say Labour are all absolutely squeaky clean all the time and we're never going to have a problem. But when we have had a problem since me and Keir have been elected, we've dealt with it and we've dealt with it swiftly. And that, I would say, is the difference. And I think people who see politicians that seem to be getting away with things that, quite frankly, they wouldn't in their day-to-day lives, it really undermines politicians and all of them. A majority of politicians go in it for the right reasons uh, of all political parties, but when you get a bad apple or people see uh, that they're covering it up or, oh, we'll just be quiet for a little bit and then hopefully people will forget and then I'll come back, it just, it just 
puts people off politicians. And I don't think, that, I, I don't think that's good for, for the country because we need the best people coming through. And we need people to, if you've done something wrong, you accept that, you take responsibility and you, you face the consequences of it. It's not just Scotland you've been. You've been out in Spain. Where, um, <laughs> according to um, some quick internet research I did this morning, uh, you, were, you were out raving until five o'clock in the morning. I've got the... the he said, what's that? He thought it was a tattoo. It's me blisters. <laughs> <laughs> these are my war wounds. I'm barely proud of these. <laughs> the girls who I was, like, raving with are half my age, and I'm like, I'm a grandma. And they're like, are you? <laughs> I'm like, yes. Uh, yeah, I was dancing. I do like my dance music. I really like my dance music. Yeah, it hasn't left me. And my neighbours probably can hear me come in a mile off when I'm in my car and I try and pull up on my driveway. Doosh, doosh, doosh. And, but I do like my dance music, yeah. But if you're out till five... Yeah, I was proud of that. 4pm I started and I got home at six o'clock in the morning when the sun was shining. I'm like, yes, I could do it. <laughs> uh, you, you, I guess where I'm going is, you're young for a politician, but you're in your 40s. I am, yeah. Did, did you do that with or without um, chemical support? <laughs> I had some vodka. <laughs> but, but if you're doing, like, from 4pm till 5am, right, you've got to pace yourself, because if, like, everyone says, and you peak too soon, like, I did a barbecue at my house, because I let myself, my hair down when I'm at home, because, you know, the Daily Mail don't get pictures of me in my back garden. So um, I do a cocktail called Venom, don't know if any of you have had it, but it's lethal. <laughs> <laughs> I invited my, friend, my, my, two, my two youngest kids there, head teacher from primary school. He came and he had to take his wife home because she'd had some venom. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so I always peak too soon. So when you're doing an all-night like that, you, you've got to pace yourself. So I drink more water, to be fair, and more sober, because if you're drunk, you can't, you can't last till five o'clock in the morning. That's no. the truth. That's the secret. You've got to have water in it. And then you've just got to go with the music. You don't need anything else. The music's there and... Time takes you with it. Bit of food? Um, no. A little bit, but not much. No, it's the music, and the vibes. You've got to be in the, the moment and it takes you. That really sounds like you've done drugs, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's the druggiest answer I've ever heard. But so, what goes into Venom? Venom, it is a bottle of vodka, absolute, I prefer, Very nice. a bottle of Southern Comfort. <laughs> Ten bottles of Blue Wicked <laughs> and a litre of pure orange juice. Right. And what does everyone else have? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's Venom. And honestly, if you're ever having a barbecue at home, get that out and everyone will have a good time. So, did you invent that yourself? No, I don't. I, no, no, you can, you can find it. It's out there on the internet. But... Um, <laughs> But yeah, I, one of my local councillors, a founder, killed up in the dog's bed with the dog after Venom. <laughs> to, to, like, get her home. And so it's, it's vodka... She's not going to appreciate that. I've got more than one female local councillor, so you're not going to know who it is. <laughs> vodka Southern Comfort, Blue Wicked and Orange Juice. Yes. So it's quite a sweet... Oh, it's really tasty, honestly. It's really, really nice. It's like an alcopop. Do you know what's nice is when people listen to this on the podcast, they can, we can give them the recipe at the start and then they can listen to this while having it. And, and then at the end of the podcast, regardless of how crappy I am, they'll think it was really <laughs> good. <laughs> so when you're doing a barbecue then, so the venom is the drink, Yeah. Um, what's your speciality in terms of the food? Food, um, well, I normally do a tatty ash. It's dead easy to do. But then you have to do a cheese and onion potato pie as well because you have to look after people who don't eat meat. So my yeah. tatty ash is corned beef. It's my nana's recipe, corned beef, potatoes, onions. But you always have to put, like, veg you have to do your potatoes in vegetable stock. That's how you make it taste really nice. <laughs> so I do my nana's tatty ash. That's always, that always goes down well. And you came through for the vegetarians. Uh, just, just thinking about... Because you don't want to be absolutely hammered and on a barbecue as well. That's the other thing. You have to get someone to do your barbecuing for you because you do not want to give people food poisoning. And I'm always, like I say, a peak too soon. So by the time the barbecue's going, I'm like, you don't want me, you don't want me doing it. But have you got someone else who can do that? Yeah, one of my other counsellors normally. It's <laughs> <laughs> on the barbecue. Yeah, yeah counsellor David is really good. He does a good job. He won't mind me telling you that. <laughs> and are you? Um, so you eat meat? Oh yeah. <laughs> Like, that is a real problem that I've found, is that I'm still in the psychology that, if you look on a menu, 
I don't, I just bypass the ones that don't have meat. And I don't know what it is. It's just yeah. from my childhood. If it ain't got meat in it, then it's not really, it's like, like a side dish. But actually, mushroom risotto and things like that, they're really nice. But I just, I don't know, I still have to kind of like discipline myself to see the non-meat options on the menu. Because, you know, th these things are political, aren't they, in some way? You know, I imagine there's lots of people in the Labour Party that are vegetarian and vegan and stuff. Are you, are you the only meat eater around the shadow cabinet table? Nah, Lisa Nandy, she's got to be eating meat. She's from Wigan. <laughs> she won't be able to step foot in Wigan again if she said that she'd given up meat. <laughs> she won't be able to eat in Wigan again. <laughs> they, just, they just do what they normally do, is just flick on a Sunday dinner, just flick the uh, beef off and go, there you go. <laughs> That's a vegetarian option. Yeah, it's got gravy on, yeah, it's fine. Because <laughs> these things... From the outside, you think, oh, my God, you know, it must be a politician, it must be a Labour politician's nightmare now when there's so much emphasis on, um, you know, every decision you make is political and things like that. And just think about things like Just Stop Oil. It feels like Labour's been quite robust with them, is that mm. Labour has its own green energy plan, its own plans for net zero, but it seems to be quite anti-Just Stop Oil. Mm. Where are you on it? When you see people gluing themselves to the motorway, do you think, good on you, or do you think, grow up? Yeah, I mean, it's quite dangerous gluing. So someone glued themselves to the um, Labour bus once when, you know, during the Jeremy Corbyn um, general election, somebody actually glued themselves to the bus, but the guy who pushed him out of the way didn't know he was glued to the bus. <laughs> <laughs> probably not. I mean, his fingerprints are probably still on, <laughs> on the bus. Because <laughs> he just kind of manhandled him out of the way, thinking he'd just like kind of put himself in front of the bus, but he was actually glued to it and ripped his fingers off. As he could. So it's, it's not a good idea to glue yourself to things. It's not. And I don't actually think it brings the public with you. You've got to be a bit smarter about how you do things. Like I, when I was a union rep, I did a silent protest once, and it had 300 people with glow sticks dead silent in a council meeting. It freaked everyone out. <laughs> so I think there's things like that. You just need to find a way of making your point without being too disruptive or putting yourself at risk as well. I think you just annoy people if you kind of halt the traffic. It doesn't really make you cause. But they'd say, look, the planet is burning, we're all going to die. Um, it, if we're a little bit annoying, isn't that a price worth paying? Uh, I don't think it brings people around, in my opinion. I don't think you're going to bring the public with you. I think, actually, people are waking up to the problem and want to do something about it. And there's more inventive ways of getting people on board to make them see that that's what you need to do. Um, it's kind of like when our own side sort of dissels, like you're not doing far enough. It's like, yeah, we're in a movement and we're getting there, but come on, don't kick me while I'm trying. <laughs> you know, we are trying our best and we are moving, and it's good that you get that pressure, but uh, disrupting the general public is not going to bring the general public around to, to, to what you're thinking. They're sympathetic to what the cause is. You kind of need to bring them with you, and there's different ways of doing that, I think, personally. As someone who's had to, like, convince the public to to go with what I want sometimes, especially as a union rep, you know, pissing them off is not the way to bring them with you, in my opinion, there's other no. ways of doing it. No, I agree, as someone who had um, tickets to day one of the Ashes, it was, uh, it was a bloody nightmare. You're like, yeah. I don't mind you doing it another time, not today, mate. Yeah, yeah. Cost Especially me if you quid. pay. Yeah, you know, you go to a concert and you pay 300 quid to get in, and then someone like kind of wrecks it. It's like, look, mate, you know, come on. Pick another day. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll help in another way, but just don't do it in that way. But is, is, it, is it too simplistic to say that if you were 18 now, you'd be part of Just Stop Oil? Or would they not have appealed to you when you were young either? I don't, I don't think they'd have appealed to me when I was young. I mean, the 18 year old me wasn't very political anyway. I was just like getting on, trying to... Do, I was a mum, my kid was two, I had my nana who was ill, and I was just busy getting on with my day job. I would have seen them as a... Probably I'd have seen them as an irritant, to be honest. And Because one of the things that really strikes me about them is they don't really seem to have many or any working-class voices. Um, and I don't know whether that's something that sort of strikes you as well, that it, it seems to be sort of predominantly... I mean, even the people that interrupted... Keir Starmer's speech on education. I thought it was really ironic that mm. Keir Starmer's given a speech on education about giving working-class kids skills to be able to advocate for themselves, and he's interrupted by two people who sounded like they went to private school. 
Yeah. And I just thought, it, it's sort of weird that it's not, it doesn't seem to be appealing to working class people in the way that a, a protest movement like that in a way should. Well, it's because they're working and they're doing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's because they're busy. That's what I was saying when I was 18. I had lots of stuff to do. I didn't have time to sort of glue myself to a motorway. I had a lot of other issues, like a lot of more drama in my life that meant that that took priority. It didn't mean that you wouldn't care about the issues. It's just that you haven't got the time on your hands to to do that and and to be active in that way so that's what I'm saying you have to connect with people in different ways and I guess in the places where we grew up getting into glue meant something very different (laughs) yeah I mean they wouldn't waste glue on the road (laughs) (laughs) oh you'd have you'd have noses stuck to the road maybe they'd be like this is a bit awkward yeah it's a protest honest (laughs) what are you doing there son I was just protesting I promise you <laughs> That's the wrong white line you were doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, since we last spoke, you've, you've crossed over into popular culture. You're now you're now a star of the West End stage. Every night in London, people can go and see you live in Spitting Image the Musical. And you're. I, know. I was on the underground the other day and I stood there and I just realised my, my one of my staffers moving just like took a picture. And your, your poster was right next to it. I was like, oh, that's embarrassing. <laughs> I try and like blend in on the underground and I'm stood next to a big poster of me like, <laughs> like, like as if insinuating that I have large lips which clearly I don't well spitting image is a caricature isn't it so yeah, it's, yeah, you know yeah. the, 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 uh, there was no sort of decision behind that other than just no I mean Tom Cruise got the harder deal I think on that one he's like I, I watched Top Gun the other day. I was saying to Matt, I watched it the other day, and I just couldn't like watch it the same now after seeing Spitting Image. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I've binned him off. Sorry if I'm giving away any. No, 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 not at show. all. If, if, if you've not yet seen Spitting Image the musical, um, Tom Cruise and Angela Rayner are really the two stars of the show, and there's there's almost a suggestion that there might be a bit of romance in there. I know, but it's it's he's got some weird political views. So have you? That's true. <laughs> Give you that one. I mean, when you watch that, how strange is it? Because I, I, I came the night that you watched it. What's it like seeing yourself in caricature form live on stage with someone doing your voice and stuff like that? I mean, I was a bit worried at first because I, I, I think I can take a joke. But it's the first time I've ever been there and there's other people in the audience and I thought, right, well, even if you don't like it, Ange, you have to like, look like you like it. But I'm northern. So northern people, we look miserable even when we're not miserable. I have to work really hard on my face because taxi drivers, whenever I go in a taxi in London, they go, Ange, we really like you, but can you not smile a bit? <laughs> you always look really grumpy. It's a northern thing. We just, that's the way we look. <laughs> so when I was in the audience and I was thinking, right, Ange, come on. Like, you've got to, so I had to try and do the... <laughs> The smile for the for the whole lot of it, but it was fine. I, I quite I I quite liked it. I thought I came out of it not too bad. You know, we don't eat raw fish. That's sushi. That's not what we do in the north. So that <laughs> idea of me picking a fish up and just like from the sea, and you certainly wouldn't do it in Blackpool or our beaches these days because there's crap everywhere. There's sewage in there, so I would certainly wouldn't like pick a fish up from one of our beaches at the moment. But yeah, I liked it. It was good fun. So you weren't offended? No, I thought it was really quite funny. I was a bit worried about whether I could laugh at the jokes about Keir, though. I thought, if someone sees that, then it might. There's <laughs> <laughs> jokes about everyone, isn't it? You've got to take them. It's spitting yeah, them, you've so just got to take them. But it was good. I thought it was really good, yeah. Because, um, obviously, you know, that, that's like a big deal to be... Car- the fact that you're in a show like that shows that your profile is raising, that people get the jokes, that people know what you sound like. What did you think... Deborah Stevenson does your voice, and I think she does an amazing job. I loved it, Do you think, oh, it sounds like me, or or, or it doesn't? No, I liked it, because I also liked, um, you know, when they they do the caricature, and it's, yeah, and it's like the Mancunian bit. I really liked it. I thought she did a really good job, and even the mannerisms and the way in which she captures the way I speak, and I thought it was really good. And, And do you feel like, in a way, you're famous now? I try not to, but when I go to Sainsbury's, it, it does tend to move my kids. <laughs> people shout stuff out. <laughs> like, some people shout, so I'm like, Yay, F the Tories. And I'm like, right, children, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Keep doing what you're doing, Ange, F them Tories. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, 
this is trying to go down the reduced style. It's like, am I allowed to be in the reduced bit? It's like, no, it's not for people like me anymore. I'm not allowed them. Oh, well, that's it. If you're, if you're going to a big supermarket, are you mindful of what you put in your basket or trolley? Do yeah, you think, oh, I was I shamed be... the other day because I got like three bottles of wine and eight packs of dual tooth vapes and that was it. That's all I had in my basket. <laughs> <laughs> and I did actually think, I think I need to put some fruit in there or something. <laughs> Some blue wicked. <laughs> you know, you're looking and you think someone's got the phone out and you're like, don't, don't take pictures of that. Don't, don't shame me. So you vape, you don't smoke? I don't smoke anymore, I vape, but my kids are really angry about me vaping and they say I should give up on vaping, but it's actually more addictive vaping because you get all the goodness without any of the badness and you don't really know it's like wrecking your body, which it probably is because nothing that is nice... That, that feels that nice is good for you, is it? It's like white bread and things like that and oh. fried food. You know it's not good for you, but it tastes good. So vaping is probably really bad for you, and I'll find out one day, but, yeah, I enjoy a good vape. I guess I've got two of them literally in my pocket. and nev- like, I'm never without them. I have one, and I have a backup. <laughs> oh, my God. And my kids call me the vape dragon, because if I run out, I'm like... <laughs> it really... So Panicky. And what flavour, what's your favourite? Obviously, vaping is wrong, don't it start. Is, yeah, don't start because it is really addictive compared to smoking. I, I do menthol. I love a good menthol vape. These other ones, those, those sweetie ones, oh, they're too sickly. It's like eating a full cake. You can't, you know, these flavoured vapes, I think you should get rid of them. They, they should definitely go. They're too sweet. They're just literally asking kids to to start and it must be honestly I think vaping is probably going to come out as a very bad thing for you obviously it gets people off cigarettes and that's good um, but I don't think our young people should be going on vapes at all yeah I hope this sort of mist isn't um, <laughs> it's me triggering you it's <laughs> not <laughs> going to have your dragon's cave West Street is not going to allow you to vape indoors <laughs> Is, and he, does he get? Do, do your colleagues say to you, "Ange, you've got to kick the vapes"? Do, do any of the, 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 no. the shadow cabinet do it? No, I think people vape. Yeah, people vape all the time, and people <laughs> still do smoke. But I don't think either of them is particularly very good for you. But it was my. I started. I stopped smoking for about twenty years. I used to smoke when I was thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, like you do. Uh, and then I gave up smoking. And then COVID happened, and I thought I'm going on my own terms because I weren't. I couldn't drink alcohol because then I'd become an alcoholic and you can't function. So I went on to cigarettes rather stupidly during COVID. It's not a good thing to do. And then obviously I've got back off them and gone on to vape. So I'm not advocating either. And I went on to Harry Bow and Skinny Caramel Lattes as well, and that's not, it's not good. But it does make you, it does get you through your morning. This is the problem, is that it, I think black coffee is probably the only thing that's all right, isn't it? In terms of something that gives you a buzz, because Diet Coke has got yeah. aspartame in it, or however you pronounce yeah, it. Yeah, you're not meant to have that, yeah. Oh man, that's like having bacon every morning. Yeah, you've got to eat raw tomatoes to try and combat that, because apparently they're evil and can attack all the bad things in you. Oh, it's t- oh, you eat a lot of tomatoes. Tomatoes are supposed to be really good for getting okay, rid of bad, bad things. And blueberries. They, they, they I have blueberries super, as well. They call them superfoods. I don't touch anything that looks good for you. I'm really bad. <laughs> like, you somebody, like, like this nutritionalist said, oh, Andrew, what work with you? And they didn't believe me. And they said, take a picture of your fridge. And I took a picture of my fridge and they were just absolutely astonished by there is nothing that has been like produced fresh in my fridge. So I still like paste, you know, like that paste that you get, not pate, because that's too posh, but like the Tesco own paste, beef paste, chicken and ham paste. <laughs> My kids will not touch it. I love it. I love paste. And I like, uh, it's like Steve Reed's always laughing because me and his parents like Frey Bentos, those pies that yes. you sort of take the lid off. And you put them in the oven. They're great. Steve was like horrified that they're actually things. And then, and then he sent me a picture of his parents with one saying, my parents love them like you and I've never heard of them before. So this, I mean, I, I know that you could get potted beef in butchers back in the day. Yeah. And I've seen pate. But paste is what? Does it come out like toothpaste? But it's... No, it's like in a jar. It's oh, like yeah. a little jar. Oh, like sandwich filler? Yeah, like sandwich oh, filler. Yeah, but it's nice. like the really cheap stuff, paste, yeah. like about 36p if you get the Tesco's own brand and stuff. And you can make like, you know, well I, I make about four sandwiches out of them, but when I was a kid we'd make at least 12 out of, a, out of one. But it's like a throwback to my childhood, I like it. I like spam as well, luncheon meat, because yes. you get a quarter of a luncheon meat when I was a kid, and I, I still like eating 
lunch and meat, things like that. That make, and I know I'm safe with it because none of and no one else in the house will ever touch it. <laughs> Unlike other stuff, they'll 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 eat it, and I'll never get a chance to look at it because I've got teenage children and they like termites. <laughs> eat everything, so I stay on my pace buddies, and I know I'm safe. No bread like, just a knife in a jar. Slips in a jar. Like <laughs> yeah, slips in a jar. Like that's, a how I, that's how I have my Nutella as well. That's another hit. That's another hit every month, you know, that time when I'm feeling a bit like I want to kill someone. Nutella from a jar. <laughs> like a sort of northern Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> <laughs> literally, yeah, literally. But yeah, like a big Nutella out of the jar, yeah. And, and what about, I mean, I wasn't planning to go down this route, but we talked about your vices and things, but do, do you exercise and stuff? No. No. I feel like when I go dancing and I close my ring, or when I'm in work, I tend to close my ring on my Apple Watch. So I close my rings when I'm in work because you're walking all around the parliamentary estate. Close your rings? Yeah, yeah, that sounds really weird if you're listening to this on some sort of podcast, <laughs> isn't it? Um, on, on my smartwatch, you know, you have your rings, exercise rings, and, and you can share it with your mates. So my Charlie, my eldest... He's got a smartwatch as well. So he sort of trolls me because he always closes his ring by 11am and I'm like way behind him. So you get your monthly challenges and stuff. So I'm always the last one. And then sometimes if it's evening and it's a bit romantic and you forget to take your watch off. (laughs) Not good. (laughs) Mum, what was you doing at three o'clock in the morning? (laughs) Nothing, son. Dancing. I was dancing. But it's, um, uh, <laughs> it's good that you can close your ring in that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh this is taking a sinister turn on. Yeah. How long have we got left? <laughs> Plenty of time. I'm holding on now. <laughs> um. Cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So last time we spoke, there was that hilarious story that you told me that some Tory MPs thought you were deliberately... Um, uncrossing and crossing your legs on the front yeah. bench yeah. to distract Boris Johnson, a sort of basic instinct thing. Yeah, yeah. It's like these people on the front row here, like, that's literally like how the dispatch box is. That's what you see when you're at the other side of the dispatch box. So all I can see is, like, you know, just about your chest and your head, and that's literally all you can see. So I'm not quite sure how they thought I was doing it. I'm not going to do an impression of what I think they were going to do, but <laughs> something like this, if order to, and you get a bit of anklet. But that's about it, really. Um, so, uh, Rishi Sunak hasn't made the same accusation. Well, Rishi, I could just about see him over the dispatch box. <laughs> <from the running. laughs> Actually, he's at the right height for a good peak. He's like... <laughs> Bless him. <laughs> what, um, have you encountered him much? What's your impression of him? Um, I had a conversation with him once when we was doing... You know when the... It was the Queen's speech, and he was Chancellor, I think. And we were walking through, because you have to do that walk-through um, when, when we're doing the whole stuff that we do. And we were talk- I had a conversation with him about whether his 10-year-old should have a mobile phone or not. This was the big dilemma, because his, ch- his child wanted a mobile phone. And I'm like, well... Because my son's got a visual impairment, so my son were on iPads and stuff by the age of four, because he uses it to- as part of his sort of, like, connecting with people and everything. So I was like, oh, my kids have had one since they were four. So I think, he- I think I've kind of helped his child out in getting into the digital age, which is probably not a good thing, because <laughs> my kids are always telling me about what's going on on TikTok. Angela Slayer on TikTok or something is quite funny. So this like this thing of when me and Dominic Rab did PMQs. It's a bit sweary, and they put those big lips, weird lips on you on TikTok. And my kids love that. They're always trolling me with it, going, "Oh, have you seen it?" Because <laughs> they do like this normal thing. Yeah, yeah. 
You can have half. You have half on my big lips. <laughs> Kids love it. And, and how's your relationship with Kira? Obviously, you're, you're deputy and, and leader, so in many ways you, you still have to work close together. Um, but there's a front page of the Evening Standard the other day saying, what's Keir going to do with Angela? It seems to be constant. Mm. Obviously, you're elected by the members, so yeah. your role as deputy leader is secure until you choose to step down. Um, but do you get the sense that he wants you to do other things or less things or more things? No, I, I think our relationship's far more constructive now. When we first were like, thrown together, because we're both elected democratically separate on our own mandates, and um, when we first sort of come together, I'm more bombastic and more sort of in your face, and Keir's more sort of strategic, give me the paper and I'll think about it. So we kind of brushed up against each other a little bit. It wasn't the best way of kind of getting over my point, like, Keir, that shit. <laughs> it, was, it was more, you needed to be a bit more constructive in the way you, you, you handle it with Keir. So we kind of know each other a bit better now, and Keir understands me more. So I reckon we've got a more constructive relationship now than we had when we were first um, elected leader and deputy leader, because we kind of get each other's vibe now. We understand each other more. It's like any working relationship. Once you kind of know where people are at, you know, the best way of sort of getting them to come round to your thinking or what they'd like and what they wouldn't like. So it's much easier to work with Keir now than it probably was when we first started because we, were, because we are completely different in the way we approach things. And do you think, because he's a, a fascinating individual, he's moved the Labour Party very quickly to what is a far more popular position. And, and people, the fact that people can even talk about Labour winning the next election is incredible in the time that he's had. And he's been ruthless with his predecessor and with a number of issues within the party. It, but it, it, it's that twin thing of he's ruthless, but in a way he doesn't present as ruthless. So mm. people are almost like, well, I can't believe that this man's ruthless, because he seems like such a calm dude. Yeah, he is. A, 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 I mean, I get asked this, did Jeremy ever like rant and did care? And both of them, both of them I never saw lose the temper or anything like that. Um, but for Keir, it's a case of he's the ultimate civil servant, public servant. He believes in doing things because he wants to achieve stuff. So he, he, he's very professional in the way he comes, a, comes across and what he does. And some people say, well, he's boring. Why can't he be a bit more like you and animated? But he's so, he's so serious about making things happen and what he thinks will get us into government to change people's lives that he's, he, he doesn't compromise because that's what he believes and that's what he thinks is right and he'll go for it, but he just has a different way of doing it. I've never seen him sort of like... I've seen him mildly frustrated and mainly when there's all these rubbish briefings <laughs> because he says that's, you know, we're, we, we're a unit and he, he has respect for people in our shadow cabinet, he has respect for people's role and when there's those briefings that go out, it, I think that I would say is probably the thing that I've seen him more frustrated about than anything is when things like that happen because he thinks that we have to be professional and we have to be there to help and to do the job that's how, how he sees it and that's why he presents himself in the serious way that he does and also I think you know I've had him on the podcast a few times I don't find him a boring person. He's a funny person. He's got no, he's interest. got sense of humour. Yeah, he's got banter. He's definitely got banter. Right? He texts me because he saw the Daily Mirror thing this week and he texts me and says, oh, it was great, Ange, but I don't do a 5am. And I, <laughs> I text him back saying, I see that as a challenge with one of those like winky emojis. So <laughs> he never responded after that. But, <laughs> but he has, flirting with me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> he, he has got banter, though. He has got banter. Definitely. And he does football and things like that. You know, he, he, he can take a joke. He has to because of his football team. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm in trouble now after that one. That's the worst thing I've said if they've dissed his football team. But yeah, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's all right. He's got, he's got personality. But when he's in work, he's in work. And he sees it as I've got a job to do and I've got a really serious job to do. And on education, because that seems to be... I, I thought his speech on education was really interesting, just talking about... The class ceiling, yeah. Yeah. Because it, it wasn't... It, the thing that really struck me was here's someone who really understands how class actually works yeah. and who's experienced it. And I've never heard a politician talk like that about it. And not just about making sure that kids from all backgrounds get good GCSEs and A-levels or exam results in whatever part of the UK they're in, but also teaching them the actual skills of confidence yeah. and how to advocate for yourself. I'm like, I can't believe, actually... 
That was something that was never spoken about when I was at school. I'm not sure if it was for you, but our generation... No, and some people that. took it the wrong way, because it was like, you know, I've got my accent. I'm from Manchester. I speak a certain way, and, and I've got my Angelorisms where I say things wrong, like somebody, like a car hit my, my car once and took the wing mirror off and said it, it was such philosophy, and everyone was like... <laughs> <laughs> it's an Angelorism. I can't say certain words. I can't say solidarity. See? <laughs> it's not a good word not to be able to say. <laughs> But Keir's point around public speaking about confidence is not about changing people's accents or the way in which they speak. It's about giving people that voice, their own voice. So giving them the opportunity to think, you know, I can speak out and I can speak the way I want to speak and be confident about it. And yeah, I think that was really important. Some people took it the wrong way. Oh, well, you're trying to make people speak with a BBC accent and things like that. That's not the case. But it's about giving people confidence to grow as the person they are and to be able to articulate that. And how does it... Because it, 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 the papers have sort of reported that you're... Um, Dating a, 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 another MP mm-hmm. who might not share Keir's mm-hmm. view of the Labour Party. Is that difficult? No, because I don't think they're that far apart. Labour's a family and it's a broad church and we all have different opinions. Me and Keir have different opinions. You know, Everybody in the shadow cabinet has different opinions, but they're broadly along the same lines. So it's, it's not a problem at all. Um, I think, you know, it's... Sometimes we choose not to talk about politics because, <laughs> you know, we do it as a day job and sometimes we can have different opinions on where we think things should go, so we switch off and talk about something else. But, um, no, it's, it's perfectly fine. And, actually, it's, it's really difficult. MPs have a very difficult lifestyle. You're away from home four days a week. You know, you have to be at a certain place and, you know, you don't work nine to five. You're off and about everywhere, so... It's actually really difficult for, for people's, for MPs' families, really, because it's really hard to be um, a family person and be an MP, and in particular be an MP on the front bench. And do you enjoy the pressure of it? I mean, you don't seem to have crumbled under any of the pressure of politics at all. If anything, from the outside, it looks like you relish a, a sort of public profile and, and, and for, for what it brings you in terms of you're doing it because you wanted to change the country in the way that you want the country to be. Like, you seem to kind of really enjoy... Yeah. What goes with, with elected office? I mean, I think, I can't remember the phrase, but it's something like find a job that you love and then you never work a day in your life. And I do enjoy, there's certain aspects of my job that are more difficult. I, I don't really like the limelight, that's not why I'm in it. But I do like meeting people and I do like um, being able to help people. That gives me a sense of purpose, makes me feel warm and cuddly inside if I've been able to help somebody. <laughs> so it's egotistical for me as well. I get something out of that. Um, and yeah, I enjoy doing my job and I enjoy advocating for people. I think that's why I was really good in the trade union movement. I could be myself, I was encouraged to be myself and, and I was encouraged to be argumentative and to support and bring people together and, and politics is that for me as well. Of course it's legislation and everything else but ultimately for me politics is about people and being there and you know, trying to make things different and improve people's lives, and that makes me feel good about myself. I don't know if that's because I was a carer for my mum, and I've always done things like that, but I was a Samaritan for a number of years as well, but I get a kick out of feeling like I've helped somebody. It really gives me, rejuvenates me and makes me feel better about myself, like I've got a sense of purpose. What about the other parts of your job, then? Because one of them is to stand in for Keir Starmer at, at Prime Minister's Questions, and given how many Rishi Sunak chooses to miss... I've had a good outing. You've done loads, yeah. <laughs> Do you enjoy doing it? Yeah, I really do enjoy PMQs. And the first, like, I was, I was only on the back bench for five minutes, so I never got a Prime Minister's Questions from the back bench. So my first Prime Minister's Questions was on the front bench doing it uh, as, you know, for the Prime Minister. And then when COVID happened, Keir got isolated loads of times. So I was the only, I think I'm the only deputy leader of the opposition who's actually taken on the Prime Minister of the day, which was Boris Johnson. That was quite fun. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I've, en- I've enjoyed it. I quite like Prime Minister's Questions. It's like boxers in a bo- boxing in a boxing ring. You've got to bring the banter. You, it's not about, you've got to get your strategic point across with some banter. Like, Oliver Dowden's really not good at it. <laughs> like, just to give him a tip, right, he does have some good one-liners, like the Holly and Phil thing. I thought that was a good one-liner, but he doesn't, he doesn't mix it in with an answer. He just kind of reads them, like, ticks off, like, and you're a horrible person. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> 
you're not delivering them well. So he has, got, he has had some zingers that I thought would be quite good if they were delivered in a package of being able to be a bit more sort of versatile at the dispatch box. If you just stuck to your notes, people can see that and you lose it. So Oliver needs to get away from his notes and just kind of be a bit more... <laughs> and he might be able to win me one day, but at the moment <laughs> it's, it's not done very well. So when you're preparing for it, are there lines that you prepare for yourself? Obviously, some people, like your staff, will contribute lines and things, but yeah. um, do you think, do you come up with one? See, there's a problem. My staff will be absolutely bricking it that I'm on air as well because they know that like, they can give me a script and I'll do like 5% if you're lucky. <laughs> Was Venom on the script? No. <laughs> I'm not sure I've done anything that was on the script so far. I think something about a green prosperity plan was on. There you go, tick, done one. <laughs> there we go, thank you for that. <laughs> My staff will be really happy you've helped me. <laughs> um, so, so, so no, um, I, I have a little bit of preparation. I do have a theme of what my questions will be. Um, but I also have a couple of, I think about, well, what would I say in response to that? I always think, what would I do to attack me? what would I do to try and throw me off guard? And then I think in my head, well, what would I say back to that? And that's my prep. And it's about 40 minutes before I go to PMQs. I won't do anything the night before. It freaks out my staff. Because they're like, can you just look at the questions at least? And I'm like, no, no, because I won't do anything the night before PMQs. I do it that morning, and it's usually about 11 o'clock yeah. when I do my prep for PMQs. <laughs> and I just think it just... Otherwise, you psych yourself out. Yeah. Because if you overthink it, then you're going to come over-prepared and you're not going to be agile enough to deal with what's in front of you. You have to take out the noise, don't think about everyone watching at home and just think about, right, the person there, what am I trying to achieve and just stay in the moment. That's how I prep for PMQs. So if you were attacking you, what would you say? <laughs> Depends on what I'm saying, you know. <laughs> so, like, if I'm, you know, if I'm doing something on the NHS or something like that, I think, well, they'll, they'll, they'll try and say something about this, and then what would I say about that? And, you know, so I, I generally tend to think about, well, if the issue I'm raising, what would I say in response to that to try and bring us, you know, to try and put me off, off guard? And Oliver never does it. You never <laughs> think, I've got better lines against me. He needs to speak to me. <laughs> I could make him look so much better <laughs> if I wanted to. So just think about the next election then. Is it I, it... I think it's so hard sometimes to disentangle the things that you want out of an election, what the media is telling you the election is going to be, and just where your own sort of assessment is. And I think the general view is the Tories have shot it, people are looking at the Labour Party... But there's a sort of general view that have the Labour Party fully won people over mm. yet? I don't know if that tallies with your personal experience. Yeah. Um, what, what is the extra bit that Labour needs to do to win the next election? I think part of the, part of the problem is, is that we've got to show that we can be radical, realistic and responsible. I call them my three R's. <laughs> because you can't just, like, people don't want you to be considered to, oh, I've got it in the bag, I'll just be safe and be a little less crap than these people and then they'll let me in. That's not... What, that's not a way of getting there. Um, but you've also got to be able to give people hope for the future, but be realistic about what you're potentially taking on as well, because the Tories have crashed the economy. We are in a bit of a, bit of a managed decline spiral at the moment. So there has to be some um, radicalism in, like, like the Green Prosperity Plan and the, and, and the vision of how we can build the industries of the future but also about the realism of we won't be able to do everything at the same time. So it's about keep doing that and showing that we're a united uh, cabinet in waiting because one of the other problems we've had and the Conservatives, I think, has been more damaging for them, not just the sleaze and everything, but the, um, the merry-go-round of different prime ministers and different ministers. And it's really, uh, it's been problematic for business, but it's been really problematic for us internationally and here. And it's just kind of um, created a chaos. So consistency and saying, this is what we're going to do, and we're going to be consistent about it, I think is one of the more important things. Like, people want a bit of stability. They want change so they can feel that it's going to be positive, but they don't want chaos anymore. People have had enough of chaos. They want to know what things are going to be going forward and have some level of stability in it, but also not a managed decline, which people have felt that's, that's kind of what we've been in this spiral of managed decline for, for, since, for at least a decade. 
And it, 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 Shadow Cabinet, are you talking about the manifesto yet? Are people pitching stuff in? If there is We've got any... a manifesto already with all yeah. the policy announcements we've already made. This is yes. the thing people say, well, you know, Labour's got nothing to say. And it's like we've said so much that one of the reasons why Keir says it would be a 10-year programme is some of these things will take a long time to, be, to bed in. We'd make the start on it. And that's why the £28 billion of investment, you're not going to be able to do that from day one. You have to ramp it up because you don't throw good money at bad. You have to create the industries and, and work with people in the sector to get to roll it out. You don't make a power station in 12 months. You wouldn't even be able to do a power station in a full term. So there's a long-term strategy to some of this and we've got a huge amount of policy that would make a big difference to, to people and I think it's about how we uh, are able to keep saying that. So I think, you know, a lot of people don't even know all the things that's in my new deal for working people. Clearly the FT didn't when they wrote their <laughs> front page today. Um, so the, there, is, there is a lot of stuff we've already said we're going to do that will transform people's lives and I think we've just got to keep making sure that people get that message. So the FT headline this morning was that um, they got the wrong end of the stick. What was it that they claimed? They said we were watering down our new deal for working people. It's just not true. I mean, like I say, with the 28 billion, for example, when they said, oh, Labour's U-turn on the 28 billion and they're not going to put it in. The position we're in at the moment as a shadow cabinet is the, the implementation planning stage so that if we do get into government, we can hit the ground running from day one. So, for example, the single status of worker there has to be a lot of work done into that, so we'll ban zero-hour contracts. Well, what does that mean? Is everyone going to have a six-hour contract? Is everyone going to have a 16-hour contract? So it's about going through the detail, working with uh, the unions, working with business, working with other organisations around the practicalities of what we can deliver and how we can do it from day one. So it's not a case of watering anything down. It's a case of when the tyres hit the tarmac, and right now this is how we're going to get there so that the next Labour government, from day one, we can go to the civil service and said we've got it and also all of the stakeholders that's why we're talking to business that's why we're talking to the unions that's why we're engaging with people now and all these stories are coming out it's because we're we're really going into the meat and the detail of what those headline policy announcements were and sometimes you have to adapt them because sometimes it doesn't what you want is unintended consequence it's better for us to find out now <laughs> than it is to say this is what we're doing and this is what this government's doing at the moment they bring in like minimum service level for example they brought in legislation on that it's crap even the business sector and the organization this this doesn't work it's no point in doing that it's just wasting everyone's time and creating bureaucracy that is never going to achieve anything so we're in the implementation phase now of real long term planning to get those things to happen and, and you talk about chaos. Obviously, Brexit feels like it's just had, such a, had a negative impact. In well, that was another one of get Brexit way. done, the oven ready deal, and then boom, nothing. You know, <laughs> we didn't have the detail of that, and then all of a sudden, everyone was like, right, we better start thinking about how we're actually going to do it. Uh, and, and that's been, you know, a bit of a dog's dinner. You know, whether you were Brexit or Remain, the implementation of it has been a dog's dinner. And, but is it a, a deliberate? position that Labour's in to not talk about Brexit too much? No, I, I, I'm quite happy to talk about it. Actually, we need, to get a, we need to wake up to getting a good deal. Europe's our biggest trading partner, you know, next door to us. We can't stop the world and get off. We need to find a way of making sure that we can actually, you know, work around this and, have our, and not have our economy damaged as a result of it. Or any other sectors, R&I, research and innovation, you know, these are really important relationships that have been entwangled for, for longer than, you know, a lot of people's lifetimes now. And, and it's not easy to just switch it off. And there hasn't been any serious... I don't think the Conservatives thought that they would ever get Brexit. And then when they got it, they were like, holy hell, what do we do now? And it's just been a bit of a dog's dinner, to be honest. And, and, and the Lords have had a really difficult time, and people have respected the Lords now, despite Boris throwing loads of people in and everyone else. But the Lords have had more respect recently because they've been sitting till 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning actually doing the scrutiny of these really disastrous, terrible bills that the government have just... It's like headlines, it's like stop the boats, all right, yeah, stop the boats, great. And then they just come up with this really threadbare, rubbish legislation that when it sort of the tires hit the tarmac, it doesn't work. And people are getting really frustrated with it and it's not solving anything and it's actually costing us more. So you, that's why Labour's so... That's why we're doing all this planning now because we don't want to say, this is what we're going to do and then realise 
you can't actually do it, or if you do do it, it's going to have a negative impact and an unintended consequence. Because this Tory government is showing you how not to do it at the moment, and we're very conscious of the fact we don't want to end up in that same situation. And just on stopping the boats, it does seem ironic that a government that said stop the boats is now planning to house, house everyone in a boat on a big boat. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. you can't have tens of thousands of people risking their lives crossing the channel every no. year. So, in a way, everyone wants to stop the votes. But sure. what is Labour's plan for that? Because it's one thing to say oh, we don't like it and they're weaponising this yeah. thing, but you still have to have a plan to. That's stop right. Those and, and we've said that we need more border control. We've lost a lot of border control. So, we need more border control. We need to be able to work with our counterparts in France, which we kind of haven't been doing enough of that. To, and we've got to crack down on the criminal gangs. We've got to get to those criminal gangs before they put people on the boats in the first place. And then one of the problems we've got at the moment is our Home Office hasn't got the resources it needs to process quickly enough. So that's why we're having people in hotels, etc. Is we just are not processing. It's totally inhumane at the moment. Our current Home Office processes, whether that's people who, you know, I've got mem- people's family who live abroad, um, and they can't bring their parents over for weddings or anything else and there's no appeal right to why they can't come over for a wedding or someone's dying in a country and they can't go over to see the relative who's dying and the system's just crumbling no decisions are made it's it's just taking years I had I had a young lad come and see me in my constituency office and he'd fled war-torn Afghanistan and he was it was um, a really young lad now and he's like I might as well just go back I can't, I can't get into school, I can't do higher education, I can't get a job. And he was literally considering going back where he was given, you know, right to be here because of what he'd been through, but couldn't get on the job market, couldn't get into education. He was just stuck in limbo because decisions weren't made about his future and he he, he just felt like his only decision was to go back and face death because he just felt like he had no opportunity here. He wanted to go to work, couldn't. Wanted to go into education, couldn't. Wanted a decision. Just give me a decision, any decision. And I've got families like that in my constituency, and it's, they just want a decision. Yes. So we need, to, we need to speed up the process so that people get decisions and we deal with it. Just as a politician, do you feel like you've grown? Because obviously you started out um, you know, working class. The trade union movement basically party politicises you and, and gives you that political education. You join the Labour Party and everything. I mean, even in the last few years, just the detail and, and your performance, like, it is like in politics, people develop, yeah. and it's like watching a footballer develop. Like, do you feel like you're, in a way, you, you, it's like watching a footballer go places. You're, you're like Harry Kane. I'm not saying you're going to go to Germany, but well, it, it, do you feel like actually that. I like his money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he's not eating paste now. No, he's not on party anymore, is he? But. Do you feel like, in a way, like leadership is yours at some point, that that is something you want to do? I just think, yeah, you do grow as a person, and I think as a politician, it's, it's the most vocational and public people can see you in the public domain as you grow, a bit like the royal family, they grow, don't they, and they're in the public domain, but um, yeah, you do grow as an individual, and I have grown as a politician and an individual, and I, I, I suppose I have changed, my, my friends call me a hybrid now, because I'm an establishment, but I'm also one of them. <laughs> so I'm a bit of a hybrid. They're like, yeah, Ange. So there's a problem with a council or authority. They're like, yeah, Ange, you'll know. I can ask you about this. Because I'm all right. They can ask me these things as well because I'm one of them. So um, I have grown as an individual and I've realised that something I'd say in my local boozer is probably not the right thing to express yourself in terms of how you put it across um, in my day job. But I also try not to be too different from who I was. So... Yeah, I try, and, I try and do my best to be respectful for the role because I'm representing my constituents. But equally, I think being myself is about representing my constituents as well because you go down to my local booster and they look and sound like me. So it's like, why do I want to levitate above the people who are like me, who I feel more connected to? So I try and find the right balance between the two. And I've always over-prepared for certain things as well. So I don't feel like I've got the answer to every question. And I've noticed that some politicians, like Boris Johnson, who have gone to private school, who think they know the best, so that they have a very patronising attitude to, like, I can come in and I don't have to overpack because I understand, obviously, because I'm very intelligent. <laughs> Whereas I tend to be, right, if I'm going into a select committee or I'm going into a debate, I really need to understand 
what's going on here because I don't want to be caught out because the stereotype is, oh, she's working class, she left school pregnant at 16, no qualifications, she's really thick. So I over-prepare. That's what I tend to do a lot of because I don't ever want to be, hence why I say, I think, well, what would somebody say to me? How would I challenge myself? Because I don't really want to be in a position where I let people down by not knowing what I'm talking about. So I tend to over-prepare for things. You mentioned the royal family in that answer. I'd be fascinated to know what you make of the royals. And like, what's your view on Harry and Meghan? <laughs> Gingers. <laughs> Do you, is there a sense of solidarity? Look, there's a ginger code. <laughs> Gingers see each other on the street. We tend to go, right? There's a ginger code. I mean, I think... I think it must be one of the most incredible... Like, it must be one of the most incredibly difficult things growing up in the royal family. Because you're a business. It's a bit like the Kardashians, isn't it? <laughs> you're a business, but you're also trying to find your way in the world. And that must be really, really difficult. Because I, I think about that with young politicians who come in in their early 20s as well. I think, if I went into politics in my early 20s, probably not. Probably not a good idea. Because, um, yeah, you're in the public, under public scrutiny constantly and everybody's got an opinion about you. So it must be really tough being a member of the Royals, but equally it's tough being on a council estate not knowing where your food's coming from to feed your kids. So it's all relative, isn't it? But is it the sort of thing you find entertaining? Like, do you enjoy... Like, have you read his book? I have. I had it, I had, I had it audio, audio book. What did you make of it? I thought it was quite entertaining. I didn't I think he'd put as much as he did in. Certainly about, like, well, his penis. Yeah. It's just that like the whole book is about him either getting a Yeah, frostbite and... <laughs> yeah, I mean, he is, he, 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 Harry is a ginger that overshares like me. <laughs> That's what I would say. In his book, he is... I don't know if it's something about the, the gene that we've got, but we, he, he, he did overshare in his book. I thought it was more honest. I'm, I, I, do you know what? I really struggled to read during lockdown. And then that is the book that's got me back into reading. <laughs> it is so fun. It's way funnier than people are giving He hasn't me asked us to do this, I hope. Like, oh, no. <laughs> he hasn't, he hasn't asked us to give him quick. a good book review. <laughs> no, I just, I've, you know, like sometimes I, I struggle to get to the end of a biography sometimes because it gets a bit. And some MPs given me for free and I haven't read them. <laughs> I've tried to. I've read the first paragraph and stuff and then it gets a bit boring after chapter one but but I thought Harry's book he did put more in it than I expected him to and I did get to the end of it and do you um so what other stuff do you like then do you, do you listen to podcasts yeah serial killer stuff okay so serial killer stuff yeah, what, yeah. um and then like have you been to see the Barbie film I did I took my kids my two boys and they were really angry they came out of it really angry they were disgusted they literally swore and said how dare they do that, and that's discriminatory against men. And I was like, right, this is a bit awkward. <laughs> I really was like, do I try and have this challenge with my kids? I'm like, well, you know, people do face misogyny. Like, you know, I face it all the time. No, you don't. <laughs> You're famous. You don't face any misogyny. You've got a good job. And I was like, oh. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so they, my, my two teenage boys came out of Barbie really angry. That's, it really provoked something inside them. I've never seen them so animated. Because Ken's depicted as an idiot. I think that was, yeah. And, yeah, and that, like, women are held back by all these guys and all this, and they really didn't like it. So I've got work to do. And do you worry about, um, like, toxic masculinity and, and what young lads can access online and Andrew Tate and all that sort of thing? Yeah, I worry about... I, I mean, I worry about all online stuff and how it infects young people's brains, to be honest. I think it's really toxic. It, it, I, I worry about algorithms that, you know, tell you... If you're looking for one thing, it'll give you loads of the same thing as yeah. opposed to broadening your horizons. I worry about, you know the whole filter system where people's lives are filtered with, I look good, I've got a good social life, I love my time, I love my food, I'm, I'm really wonderful, so it makes everybody else feel like, oh, I'm lonely, I'm miserable, I'm ugly. And I worry about how that affects people's self-esteem, especially young people as they're growing up in that. Like, when I was a kid, I got absolutely rinsed and bullied because of ginger kid didn't have the right clothes, steel toe cap shoes, dog hairs all over me, so I was called the scrubber and everything and had a really bad time. And, but when I shut my door, they weren't in my bedroom. And now 
they're in the bedroom because they've got the phones and everything else, and I just worry about how that affects young people. Have you ever run into any of the people that bully you since? Um, a few years back, I was, at an, I, was in, I was a union rep, and I went into the work, direct works where the, the lads work on the maintenance in, in the council, and one of them went, oh, uh, he used to bully you at school or something, and I went, and I used to bully him, <laughs> and then it, like, oh, the whole place went, oh, a union rep used to bully you at school, and like totally like troused him, so he shut his mouth after that. So. That's um, good. But, but I haven't met... No, I haven't really seen... I do have some people who, from my younger days, are still on my Facebook and things like that. And I've got my... My best friends are still my friends that I had when I was at primary school and secondary school. I've got three best friends, and they're the same ones that I've had all the way through my life. And they're, re- they're really good. But they, they did the terrible thing of thinking they should respond to my trolls and correct them <laughs> on how wonderful I am. And then they were like, Angie, like, how do you tolerate it? Four days I got like bombarded with people saying horrible things about you. I was like, just don't, don't try and respond to my trolls. It's not a good, not a good so, thing. Uh, so I'm guessing your Facebook page is, is more honest than the one, you know, there's no filter. It's just um, photos of Labour councillors cuddled up with dogs, <laughs> venom spewed all over the garden. Yeah, I mean, I don't put my life on social media, it's fair to say. I have a private Facebook page, which has about 400 odd people on it, so it's not really private. And then I've got, uh, you know, your private Facebook profile, and then I've got a Facebook page, which is Angela Rayner, the politician, and I've got, yeah, my social media is not, not full of, like, my gastro stuff and everything else I get up to. I don't put all that stuff on. Um, we've come towards the end now, Angela, but I just want to ask you one final question. What... Is harder for Labour to win the next election or for you to quit the vapes? <laughs> right, I would definitely quit the vapes to win the next general election. <laughs> I would do it in a heartbeat. <laughs> I'm probably going to have to do it now. That starts today. My That's... kids would say that, like, I will definitely have to do it now. Not today, tomorrow, yeah. I need a vape <laughs> after this. <laughs> I need a vape and a wine after this. I've promised myself one. You should throw those vapes into the crowd like um, drumsticks at the end of it. <laughs> yeah, take someone's eye out. It was bad enough doing the last leg when they had to electrocute a disabled person. I thought, this, is, this could go one way or another as a politician. So Had to. <laughs> Angela, this has been an absolute treat. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, before we thank Angela, please a round of applause to everyone here at the McEwen Hall and at Avalon who made tonight possible. This afternoon, sorry. My next guest on the political party on the 21st is Kate Forbes, oh. who almost became First Minister of Scotland. That's at the Gilded Balloon in the afternoon. I'm on at uh, the Pleasance Courtyard every night at 8pm with my hilarious stand-up show, Inside Number 10. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, this has been a treat. Thank you for being such a wonderful audience. But please, a huge thank you to potentially the next Deputy Prime Minister, Angela Rayner. Thank you. Well, there you go, Angela Rayner, as always, over-delivers as a guest. Phenomenal company. Um, And really interesting hearing her talk about the two-child limit and about other areas of Labour policy that are unpopular in some circles and what the rationale is. And you get that, you really get that sense of Labour being very hard-nosed going into that election and uh, and also united um, on on those issues. Um, But my God. We've now all got to try a pint of venom. There were people who we met after the gig um, who had tried it, and I, I didn't expect it to look the colour it does. It's like a luminous green. Looks like something out of Ghostbusters. Um, but if you've tried venom, maybe we should do like something around the election where we have a, a political party venom special or something. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm just I'm throwing out ideas that are frankly terrible. So, at uh, the next live show is on the 21st of August at um, 1 p.m. at the Gilded Balloon, and that is with Kate Forbes, who ran Hamza Yusuf as close as she could 
uh, to be the next leader of the SNP and the next First Minister. Um, and then when we return to London in September, my first guest back at the Duchess Theatre is Dan Jarvis, who has led an incredible life. Uh, a paratrooper who served in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's an MP and a mayor and is someone who a lot of people look to to be a future leader of the Labour Party. Then on the 2nd of October, uh, again at the Duchess Theatre, my guest is Jason Williamson, lead singer of the Sleaford Mods, who are absolutely incredible, but deeply political, satirical, and funny lyrics. Um, so uh, I, I love getting on people from different spheres who are uh, political in their own way. So lots more guests to be announced for the London run, and you can get tickets for um, my solo show as well at the Edinburgh Festival, Inside Number 10, Tickets for all shows available at map4.com. And I shall see you soon. Ta-ra.